0: Hello and welcome to another Trinity College Dublin Talks. Uh, My name is Tom Malloy and with us today is Jane Stout, who is a professor in in the School of Natural Sciences in Trinity College. She moved to Trinity in 2001 and is an ecologist who essentially tries to understand the links between biodiversity and the ecosystem. Or Another way of putting that is she tries to understand our relationship as human beings with nature, how we depend on nature our nature depends on us. It's a kind of a... Jane, welcome to the show, first of all. Thank you. It's, it's a complicated area, isn't it? Because obviously the understanding of sustainability issues has come on leaps and bounds mm-hmm. in the last... or this, the understanding within the public has come on leaps and bounds within the last 10 to 20 years. But we don't always understand the kind of... the differences between things like climate change and biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And I, I think... Uh, that perhaps we understand climate change a bit better. It's, it's more around us. After all, we all experience hot summers and mm-hmm. cold winters and too much rain. Whereas we don't really experience um, the threat to the biodiversity in the same way. Can you talk to us a little bit about what, what it is that, that you look at exactly?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the reasons that we maybe don't connect to nature so much is because of our, our, our lives... Uh, you know, if you're an urban person, you, you're buying your food from the supermarket. You're you're travelling in a in an air-conditioned vehicle, you know, to and from school or work. Um, you're not necessarily immersed in nature. So, whilst you notice it's raining, you don't necessarily notice the trees and the animals as you're passing. Um, so, what I'm interested in, what I do, is to try and understand nature. So, as an ecologist, I try and understand interactions between organisms and between organisms and their environment um, and to try and understand the production of resources, the flows of those resources uh, through nature Um, and and possibly one reason that uh, it's it's not easy for, for people to understand is because it's so complex. So ecologists have been studying nature for hundreds of years, um, the complexity in ecosystems is incredible and the interactions between organisms and how they affect one another and how small changes in the physical environment or small changes in the amount of food that's available or the diseases or predators, these tiny little changes can have knock-on consequences through the ecosystem. And understanding that is is fascinating, but it's also really complex and really difficult. And because it's complex and difficult, it means that it's difficult to predict how um, big changes, how climate change, and all the intricacies of how that has knock-on implications. Some species may do better, some species may do worse, some will change their ranges, Um, others will change their diets or their behaviour and and just the intricacies of all those knock-on consequences are difficult to understand. So you know we often say that you know ecology is not rocket science, it's you know um, it's much harder than rocket science In rocket science you know what happens when you screw one little bit to the next and it does something. Uh, In ecology if that's screw attaches or comes loose we don't necessarily know what happens.
0: So you've used the word complexity or complex Mm. about eight or nine times there can you give us an example just kind of just a a small sample of Mm -hmm. you know what these knock-on effects might be in a a particular ecosystem.
1: Okay so my my favorite subject um, is the interaction between plants and their pollinators and so I work on the interaction between bees and flowers mostly Um, and so if a flower Uh, You know, a flower produces particular characteristics to attract um, pollinators because plants can't move. So in order to reproduce, they need to rely on the services of animals. Um, So flowers will produce a particular scent, a particular colour. The flowers will come out at a particular time of year, will contain a nectar um, with a particular concentration or ratio of sugars, uh, pollen with a particular amino acid complex. Uh, uh, um, structures um, and though those characteristics will attract particular animals to visit those flowers. Um, so there's an awful lot going on there in terms of the plants and, and, and how small changes in the amount of nectar or the type of sugars or the, the colour or, or what time of year the flowers open or what time of day the flowers open um, can influence what visits those flowers. Uh, and changes in the visitor community, so if we, we have more um, visitors of a particular species or, or you know or they behave differently because the climate's changed or something, um, that can affect that intricate interaction and then you know we haven 't even talked about sort of the spatial arrangement of the pollen and the size of the insect's body and where the pollen lands on the body and you know so there's so many factors just in that one interaction of, of one insect visiting one flower, and if we scale that up to a community of flowers uh, and a community of visitors and then we scale up further than that to a landscape of different habitats containing different plants with different types of flowers and different visitors and you know so you can see and I think we, of, we often talk in, in biology about uh, levels of biological organisation and we can think of these as sort of levels of complexity from the, um, uh, the kind of the, the cellular the biochemical processes all the way up to, to landscapes regions biomes so that's I think
0: Tommy how do, how does your research work then because I I think uh when one when one thinks of complicated systems or rocket systems mm. for instance one usually assumes that the people researching this are sitting in front of computers and kind of modeling stuff using the laws of thermodynamics and the like how does it work with you Jane are you do you model these systems kind of digitally or is it more kind of like uh, one imagines a Victorian botanist kind of out in the field with a a net maybe catching creatures looking at them under microscopes and kind of noting how many earwigs there are in a square meter like well, what it's well, both what's your research like both yeah, yeah. it's both
1: yeah. so you know we need to we need to go out there and we do wander around with our nets uh, and and catch things and record things and so that we can try and and capture some of the variability or try and to just just to see what the variability is and then we can bring that back into the computer models Um, and we can try and find, uh, you know, within all that variability and all that complexity, are there any kind of general trends that we can see? So is one particular... Uh, species of bee more often found in one particular landscape type? You know, if we sample 20 landscapes, can we draw any general conclusions? So that's why we use the the statistical modelling to try and draw out generalities. And then we also use it for making predictions. So if we can find these general rules um, and we can understand more about how organisms respond to different things in the environment, then we can start to make predictions about how uh, change will affect them. So, for example, you know, the example of climate change, how climate change might affect them, or how if we change management and switch from growing one crop to another crop, or if we, um, you know, plant a woodland or uh, build a housing estate, you know, how these these kind of changes, at, at, in terms of human-induced changes, how they can have implications and knock-on consequences for the for the ecosystem. So, it's definitely getting out in the field and it's definitely looking at things under the microscope uh, and it's you know using uh, molecular uh, methods to uh, you know identify pollen or to understand relationships between different species even to 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 identify species we've got some species of bee in Ireland that uh, look to the Mm, naked eye exactly the same and you need molecular methods you need to fingerprint them uh, to to tell the difference so you know yeah as, as an ecologist you you can use a whole diversity of methods and tools to try and understand the system.
0: So look, in a minute I'd like to ask you, because obviously what you say suggests that to be a successful botanist in the 21st century, you need to be interested more than, say, flower-pressing plants. Absolutely. I'm very curious about your own journey, (laughs) first of all. How did you go from being the young Jane Slout of 11 or 12 to to being a professor of uh, botany today? I mean, what, what, what brought you along the journey? When did you realise you were really interested in botany?
1: um i i suppose I got, I got interested in in understanding ecosystems during my a levels i did a level biology and you know a lot of it was focused on human biology and that that's interesting and fascinating and sometimes a bit yucky um but the the ecology just just really grabbed me and so when i went to university i studied environmental science so that i could um, still incorporate different disciplines because I also enjoyed geography so I could do my geography I could do my biology I did a bit of oceanography a bit of geology um, and, and came out with quite a broad degree um, I ended up working on insects because um, I went on a, um, an, an overseas expedition a conservation expedition to East Africa uh, just after I graduated from my undergraduate degree um, and one of the things we did was, was profiling forests and trapping insects. And I you know, started to look at them and thought, OK, these things are interesting. When you look at them closely, they're, they're really fascinating. Mm. And, and then um, almost by accident ended up working with uh, an entomologist and doing a PhD. What's an entomologist? When an entomologist say, oh, is somebody who studies insects. OK. Yes. Yep. Uh, so uh, ended up doing a PhD on the ecology of bumblebees. Um, Which and has
0: become one of your great specialities. Yeah, and, and you know, it was, but it was always that
1: interaction between plants and animals. So even though yes, I'm sitting yeah. here in, in, in the botany discipline in the School of Natural Sciences, I've always worked on both plants and animals. So and it's, it's
0: as if you can't make up your mind. Am I a zoologist, <laughs> semi-botanist, and you decide I'll just be both? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And actually, you know, it's, it's, it's it's yeah. what I do is yeah. even broader than that now, because yeah. there's a lot of you know this landscape-type stuff that's um, you know understanding spatial patterns and, and geography and, and uh, social interactions and, and how society perceives nature and what we can do, you know, so you're going into the social sciences, so it's become very, very broad, and I think that's from my, my broad sort of interests coming in, specialised into the bees, uh, and then broadened out again uh, to, to where we are now
0: So, if uh, if there's kind of equivalence of, of, of the Jane, young Jane start listening today what, what do they need to Consider if they're asking themselves, is this a path for me? Is uh, environmental science, let's say, or to come to Trinity and do, you mm. know, uh, natural sciences? What what um, what, what skill set do you or, or kind of things should they be curious about?
1: I think that's that's I think that's the key word there: curiosity, curiosity and um, interest and passion. So I think, you know, I, I, I didn't really have a career plan, I have to confess. I just did what I was interested in and, and ended up here. Um, but I think by doing what you're interested in, um, you're, you're keen to work at it. You do well. Uh, and and and, flourish and, and it and flourishes yeah. so I mean I think definitely you need to have an interest in a passion don't follow a career path just because you think it should be the one you should do or your parents want you to do it or, or, or whatever so you've got to have the interest in the passion I suppose for for the kind of stuff that I do um you know you need you need a scientific uh, approach so you know some quantitative skills uh, observational skills um this curiosity to to ask questions Um, and and for for what we do uh, a passion to be outside so a lot of our work is is, is outside gathering data you know I've had the the privilege of traveling all over the world to do research which which you know is is, it can be it can be fantastic opportunities or a drag
0: um. if you're not that way inclined so you've got to be prepared to travel to if get you outside. want to do the kind of thing that I do, yeah, but then yeah, there's plenty yeah. of other, uh, yeah. you know,
1: ecologists who who focus on the data side of things, um, or, or ecologists who focus on the field and don't do the data side. Mm. You know, so there's there's, it, it's kind of okay, follow so what generous you're interested discipline,
0: in. Then you've just got to be interested in in nature at a at a kind of yeah, market. I think so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Let's 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 talk about bees. Mm-hmm. Uh, your anybody who is in Trinity is, is, is aware of you, really, because you've been, you've... you've that mad bee lady. I think yeah, like the mad bee lady, something us. like that. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, <laughs> but you, you've, you've put beehives, the first in Dublin two in a long time, I think. Uh, you've also, um, in a 50-acre campus, last year you managed to find 1,000 a, a, a square metres of, of land and kind of wilded it, which is, is kind of fantastic. Um, anybody who reads the newspapers knows that, that there kind of the are constant warnings about how the bee population are going to die and anyone who thinks about that for more than half a minute knows that without bees we don't have pollination, without pollination we don't have crops, without mm-hmm. crops we don't have food for human beings. Is this a real worry or is it all kind of hyped up? You're the academic, you tell us. Yeah,
1: no, well, uh, I mean, if we think about the situation in Ireland, so mm. we've, we've a hundred, about 100 species of bee in Ireland, uh, one of which is the honeybee. Only
0: one, isn't it? I mean, Just the, the one. The other 99... Uh,
1: That's right, and so all these kind of si- save the bee campaigns, is like, well, which bee? You know, and, and an awful lot of the, the media... Uh, Attention and the public focus has been on honeybees, um, and honeybees are being looked after. They are managed. They have beekeepers who feed them when they're hungry, give them medicines when they're sick. So they're being looked after. There's
0: a commercial. Yeah, and
1: yeah. there are there are um, uh, things that are affecting commercial activities. So there are diseases that are mm. you know that that are difficult to manage and colony losses over winter, but they they are being managed. The other ninety. In, in, actually it's, it's 98 species in Ireland, um, are the wild bee species. Half of those, uh, their populations have declined uh, by more than half, and a third of those are officially listed as being at risk of extinction. So we know that there's... Where do they
0: live? Do they, do they live in wild hives? Kind of in no, well, or?
1: most of them are solitary. So this solitary, is the other thing okay, about right. bees, is most bees don't live in hives. Okay. Most yeah. of them uh, don't live in colonies. They're, they're solitary. Most of them live in the ground, um, and they come out to forage. And, so and how long
0: does a bee live for? Like depends it, on the species. Roughly a year, oh, five um, years, one year. So
1: a queen bumblebee would live for about a year. Um, a worker bumblebee would live for maybe a few weeks. Um, some of the solitary bees, the adults will emerge, forage, mate, found next year 's colony like next year 's nest, sorry um, and, and then die out so weeks so not rather long than than so not long. an individual doesn 't live that long. Yeah. a queen honeybee can live several years um, so, so there's it yeah. a
0: class difference among depends the bee world. on yeah, yeah
1: absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I interrupted you, sorry, no so we
0: have this ninety eight Bee types that don't produce honey but do, of course, pollinate.
1: That's right. So what defines being a bee is feeding your offspring on pollen. So this means that bees spend a good chunk of their time going to flowers uh, and whilst they're collecting pollen to feed to their offspring, they get pollen on their bodies, they move to the next flower, that pollen gets transferred. And that's the process of pollination. Um, And a lot of the the media attention has been on the fact that a lot of our crop species are are animal-pollinated, so about 75% of crop species globally are animal-pollinated. And there's a risk that if there's pollinator decline and pollinator loss, there's knock-on impacts on those crops. Um, absolutely. And that's all true. Um, there's also the, the other big part of um, the story which, which often doesn't get much media attention is the fact that um, they also pollinate nearly 90% of all wild plant species. Yeah, yeah. So most ecosystems um, contain animal pollinated plants so if we lose the pollinators we change the structure of ecosystems that has knock-on consequences we were saying earlier about how everything's connected knock-on consequences for nutrient cycling for um, water retention for providing food for other parts other wildlife in the ecosystem etc so those those ecosystem benefits aren't often discussed but are are as important as the the food benefits, there's also the, the so you know bees are
0: kind of engines of diversity, and if they were to die out, there would be a kind of catastrophic loss of diversity. There could
1: there could be massive changes. Uh, why, yeah. Why, why,
0: Professor Stout, are they dying out? What, what what's happening? It's to a this,
1: combination this of factors. <laughs> it's thought to be driven by um, loss and destruction and degradation of habitat, um, pesticides and diseases, and the interactions between those three main drivers of decline. Um, the big one being loss of habitat, so loss of places to feed, loss of places to live, uh, degradation of that habitat and homogenisation of habitat, so we're losing the diversity at the habitat level, which means that there's not the diversity of places to live, so different species have different requirements. As I said, most, most bees nest in the ground. We've one species of bee in Ireland that only nests in the shells of a particular snail that lives on the coast. You know, so they, they, they have specific requirements, and the more homogenised the landscape becomes, the the less likely those speciality, um, special places, those little niches are to, to exist.
0: And how do we compare with other countries? I, I spend quite a lot of time in German forests, and I'm, I'm always struck by how dead Irish forests appear when I come home. Uh, you know, the German forests are full of... Uh, insects, snakes, mm. uh, woodpeckers, you know all kinds of creatures that, that we just don 't have here. I know snakes and woodpeckers are not indigenous to, to Ireland, but, but there's a lot of you know you drive around at night, you have more insects on in your car mm. lights than you do here. Uh, I mean how do we compare with uh, the rest of europe
1: we, we, I mean biogeographically, we 're a small island on the edge of a continent, so we 're always going to have less. Diversity. So we've we've lower number of species, um, lower diversity in habitats. So so you know that's just a consequence of, of biogeography. Um, we've also a very high proportion of agriculture. So compared mm. to the rest of the EU, Ireland has the highest proportion of land cover um, in, in, in under agriculture. Um, so we is have that
0: bad for diversity because one would think if one didn't think about it like me that that might be good. You know that, that
1: depends on what the agriculture yeah, is. Yeah, so if it's yeah. very intensive and it's all exactly the same, yeah. then we've lost that diversity. Um, so there are some animals, some insects, that do really well in, in intensive grasslands, for example, but there's lots that don't. So it's, it's about having diversity. So yes, we can have intensive grasslands and we can have woodlands, and, but it's about having that diversity within the landscape. Um, and, and you know, Because of our geographic position, uh, the research that, that we've done suggests that um, agriculture has had quite a, a strong negative impact on um, pollinators, pollinating insects. Um, the recent reports from the Irish government to uh, the, the Global Convention on Biological Diversity is that um, something like 85% of our protected habitats are in unfavourable status so bad news and that a lot of that is driven by agricultural intensification so it's the way we do agriculture it's not agriculture per se it's the way it's done um, and that's what we, we need to tackle
0: So let's end on a, an optimistic note if we can because um, you know a collapse in diversity is clearly not optimistic but what what could we do uh, or what, what policy responses tend to, to work and to, to kind of yield kind of diversity?
1: Um, with certainly agricultural policies, you know, the, the cap is currently under reform. Uh, that's, there's a big opportunity there to start rewarding farmers for the, the good quality habitats they have on their farms, which currently aren't necessarily rewarded. Um, so to start to pay farmers for, for delivering public goods, delivering mm. biodiversity, carbon sequestration, so that picks, kind of thing. So
0: has lots of bees on his farm. Farmer Y doesn't, so Farmer X gets higher that, subsidies. Yeah, yeah. That,
1: kind, that kind of approach. So there's yeah. that kind of policy driver. Um, but then there's also the sort of the bottom-up um, groundswell uh, that we've certainly seen through the all Ireland Pollinator Plan, which is just getting people on board. Once people are aware that there's a problem um and you know the first question is what can i do mm. what can i do so what we did through the pollinator plan was to 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 break it down into sectors and say okay so if you're interested in in gardening and you're a gardener what can you do in your garden if you're a small business or even a big business what can you do uh, if you're you're a farmer what can you do if you're i don't know golf course owner whatever it is so and, and that kind of bottom-up approach can also work very well you know people are aware and people are concerned <coughs> we, we've uh, another survey we did recently we found that over 90 percent of, of people that we surveyed across ireland were aware that bees were in decline and wanted to do something about it that's great now we need to give them the mechanism yeah. to do something so i think it's because nature is complicated because we don't always know the answers it's hard to to know what to do for the best uh, but i think the will is there um and i think the, the attitudes are changing. We've seen over the last 12 months the, the change in the general public in their environmental awareness, the, the climate strikes, um, the, you know, the looking at the posters the kids had, had made at the last strike. You know, they're not just talking about climate, they are talking about the planet, nature, Mm. um, and it's connecting those issues, connecting the issue of climate, which everyone, I think, is aware of, with the issue of biodiversity loss. And and one of the problems is the word biodiversity. People don't really know what it means. It's a very abstract word, yeah. Yeah. That's right. So um, trying to to make it manageable, because I think everybody can do something about biodiversity loss. You know, everybody can do something. You can do something at a small scale and it will make a difference. Whereas I think sometimes for the, the climate... You know because it's a global problem and a global system you feel like doing a little bit of something doesn't make any difference mm. but if you do a little bit of something that helps nature chances are it probably has a climate benefit as well
0: so you're fortunate you have 50 acres in the middle of dublin to play with to degree in, and you've done a lot to to make trinity <laughs> and i can't take credit for no that. but the, you the have the states you and have, facilities yeah, you're, you're, and lots of other no, people lots of colleagues <laughs> have done it as well. Yes. but. but uh, uh and we talked to them as mm-hmm. well but you know you, you've definitely played a role and in, in, in been influential but i what i wanted to get to was mm-hmm. um you know most of us have a flower box on a balcony or they have a small garden mm-hmm. what what two or three things can somebody with a, a kind of bog standard uh suburban garden do that might might, might help a bit do to- less do that's that's, that's
1: my my advice. Um, become a lazy gardener. Oh, yeah. uh, mow the lawn less often. Allow things to flower in the lawn. Um, leave piles of leaves. Leave uh, you know a, a compost pile. Something for for you know all sorts of things live in in, in piles of dead stuff. Um, stop using chemicals in the garden. Any kind of
0: fertilizers as well, or are you thinking mainly pest or just uh, stop chemicals of all kinds. I th-
1: stop chemicals. You know, yep, we, we, yep. We're, we're chucking an awful lot of yeah, chemicals yep, uh, yep. on the land. We, we're using a lot of chemicals in the home. The less of that we can use, the better. Uh, and so, yeah, I'd say do less to do more.
0: So is your garden kind of uh, overgrown, <laughs> unkempt? <laughs> this this <laughs> is my excuse for my
1: garden, yes. <laughs>
0: Jane Stapp, thank you very much for, for joining us today.